everyone and welcome to Intimacy with the World podcast. I am Dorita Hall, your host on this show where we explore what it really means to live a meaningful life. Now normally I am just the host on this show and I bring in guests and explore their wisdom. But today it's only me. I actually had scheduled two interviews for this week, but for different reasons, um, both of them had to cancel. And then I thought, hmm, this must be a sign for me (laughs) that I should do a podcast on my own. So as I said, my podcast wants to explore how we can live a truly meaningful life. And of course, if somebody... Um, goes on this journey of having a podcast it's because they're going to choose a theme for their podcast that to them is most interesting so for me that is my greatest interest in life like how can we live lives that are not just happy and good and prosperous and so on but that are actually meaningful Um, I have come to understand that or I have observed in my own life, that meaning is even more important than than happiness. Happiness is very important, but it's as if we can't sustain happiness all the time. Um, Happiness comes and goes, but what can sustain you almost through anything, uh, even the hardest times, perhaps, is meaning. This is what I have found. And I'm, of course, not the only one who says who says this. So I was kind of reflecting about, okay, if you're going to do a podcast, just you, yourself, uh, what are you going to speak about? And I thought, well, you know, I have subscribers on this podcast, people who listen every week. And of course, when I have my conversations with other people, I do share about my own life. But uh, since I am at the moment actually writing an ebook, you know, a book that will be downloadable uh, soon from my website, I thought, oh, I can share some of the things that I'm uh, exploring in my in my little book. Um, so by by training, and I mean, um, I went to university in Oslo many years ago, and I studied anthropology. And what I think is really interesting is that the method in anthropology is participant observation. And isn't that just a most amazing method for studying life itself, (laughs) you know, participating fully in life and at the same time observing yourself in life, you know, observing the life thing that never stops and that we normally are so immersed in that we never really seem to get a good perspective on it while we're in the midst of it. We never seem to get more of an overview um, of what really seems mm, to be going on. What on earth is actually going on in our lives? Uh, Something that would often be quite helpful so that we had a better chance of seeing where we came from, where we are at the present and where we are heading. And what is also quite interesting about this participant observation, which is the method in anthropology when they go on and do field work, is that since then I've become a a mindfulness teacher. 
And one of the methods in mindfulness, the, the main method in mindfulness is observing. It's observing your own mind and seeing what's going on in your own mind. Seeing all the patterns that are governing you, that are governing you in your daily day life. Your thought patterns, your emotional patterns and your action patterns, how you, how you go about your life. So I, I think this is, um, uh, it's quite appropriate to really engage in this participant observation. So mostly, however, our life seems to largely run on autopilot. And sometimes we think that we had an intention for one kind of life. But then somehow, mysteriously, we ended up somewhere completely different. Often without feeling that we really had much of a choice in the matter. It just happened. So for the past eight years, I have been a keen participant observer in my own life. Uh, at the same time, I have been ferociously devouring books and teachings about everything having anything to do with trying to understand life. Be it meditation, mindfulness, philosophy, psychology, quantum physics, evolutionary biology, neuroscience, nutrition, exercise... <laughs> So does this then mean that life has been really easy and fun for the last eight years since I started on this endeavor of, of really um, exploring life? No, it doesn't mean that. But looking back, I can see that it probably has been one of the most interestingly thrilling periods of my life. Why? Well, because I was absorbing incredible amounts of new learnings and trying them out at the same time for some periods of time in my life. Whether it be silent meditation retreats, fasting, getting very fit, doing yoga every day, eating only vegetables, <laughs> doing visualizations and on and on. So all the while while I was uh, testing all these things out in my own life for periods of time, I was at the same time actually observing the effects on my own life, both the present lived experience, but also trying to apply a larger perspective to see the overall effects of engaging with life in this particular way. And today I'm in a, a little bit different space. I'm still reading, I don't know, a book a week or something like that and still love learning, but I've always learned, loved learning my whole life. Uh, but I'm not as obsessive about it, perhaps. Um, so I feel that it's, those years were very much about uh, exploring what was out there, like how, how can I make my life... <sighs> I was going to say better, but what I really mean is more meaningful. There was like a longing, there's got to be more to this. And of course, this all came from a profound crisis. That's why I started on this endeavor. I will tell you more about my crisis without going into deeply personal stuff. So, so those seven, eight years were a lot about accumulating uh, knowledge and experimenting with that kind of knowledge. Whereas now I feel more like I'm in a place of sharing it with others 
you know, I teach meditation and I teach mindfulness courses and, um, and not just sharing what I've learned, but I suppose also reaping the fruits of some of that are more of a resting in life. And it doesn't mean that there aren't challenges still. <laughs> there are just as many challenges. But I have more tools to deal with those challenges. So in this ebook that I am currently writing, I think that the first chapter in the book is going to be called The Hero's Journey. And for those of you who don't know The Hero's Journey, this term comes from, um, from Joseph Campbell. And I think he's the one who coined it. Uh, he probably coined it in the, the late 1940s. And his very famous book where this uh, term is used is called A Hero with a Thousand Faces or The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And Joseph Campbell studied mythologies and creation myths and fairy tales and spiritualities and religions all around the world. You could say perhaps that he's a mythologist or something like that. And, um, and try to find out what's common in all these stories. And what he came to, well, his conclusion was that we humans, or at least some humans, to come into fullness, to come into the wholeness that we are, or to come into the full potential that we can be, we need to go on this journey called, what he calls, the hero's journey. Um, and the hero's journey is full of challenges, and it's a difficult journey. And the whole point of going through all these challenges, we know this through the fairy tales. There's always like a, a poor, uh, the youngest sibling in a family that needs to go out and conquer all sorts of monsters and challenges so as to, in the end, be able to marry the princess. <laughs> so it seems that we need to go through some of these challenges to find that inner wisdom and that inner strength that can then carry us through to a, a more wise place, a more fulfilled and whole place in ourselves. Um, so I have been on that hero's journey for sure. And I think that by most people's measure, I started my hero's journey when I was 19 years old and I took a job on a longline fishing boat way up in the North Atlantic Ocean. And there we were, 15 grown men and me battling the cold winds and the winter seas up between Iceland and the Faroe Islands. So I was working in, in that harsh environment to earn money to set out on my own, in my own very primitive sailboat. So I'd only just turned 21, I think, uh, when I set sails in my sailboat, Salka Valka, with the idea to just keep sailing west until I had circumnavigated the globe and come back to my starting point, back to the Faroe Islands. And this journey took three years. 
But actually, that was not my hero's journey. Was it a grandiose adventure? Yes, absolutely. Three years out there on the oceans and having to deal with all sorts of things. I even become, became a mother in New Zealand. And when my daughter Freya was four months old, we continued sailing. So it was an, a grandiose adventure. It really was. No doubt about it. Um, but it wasn't really the hero's journey because it didn't really deliver me into a better place in my own life. So what kind of a hero am I talking about then? And what kind of journey when we speak about the hero's journey? So let's just start by distinguishing between our inner world and the outer world. So maybe then I was a hero in the outer world. Someone who knew what they wanted and had the courage and the willpower to push through all the obstacles to get to the finish line. But, the, but what did my inner world look like? Did I know what I wanted? Was I courageous there? And the simple answer is no. Though, to be honest, I actually thought I knew that I wanted and I certainly thought I was a person with courage. And I suppose what I'm revealing is that for most of us, we don't distinguish much, distinguish much between our outer and our inner world. And we fail to see that, that what will really make a difference in our life is how we work with and relate to our inner world. And furthermore, we fail to see that the outer world is always a reflection of our inner world and not the other way around. So my real hero's journey started when I was 38 uh, and it started because my life completely fell apart and I lost everything that I cared most deeply about. I lost my partner whom I was still madly in love with. <laughs> I had a teenage daughter and our relationship was often very difficult. And I also had a three-year-old daughter and she was also being very difficult, I thought. And so it felt like my life was falling apart. And if this is not a wake-up call, I don't know what is. So in the beginning, I did what most of us do. I looked for whom and what to blame. <laughs> Who can I blame? <laughs> um, I have, however, I think, always had like a natural gift since I was a child of intuition. And it's an intuition that when the odds were really seriously, were really serious enough, that intuition didn't let me off the hook. And that intuition just kept whispering or even shouting to me until I listened. And this time the stakes were so high. They were higher than ever. I mean, they were, I'd lost or it felt like I'd lost the three most important relationships in my life. Or I hadn't lost the relationship to my daughters, but they had really deteriorated. So without me taking a conscious decision about it, my intuition took the reins 
And I think I was able, I think that my intuition was able to do this because I was so weak at that point. And my normal, bigger than life ego was utterly destroyed at that point. So my intuition could take over. So when one day I was in our little local grocery store and I saw Mike who had come down to the village from his mountain meditation hut where he was doing an eight months solo meditation retreat. Now I knew Mike, he was a friend and a neighbor, but although he had been a meditation teacher in a Tibetan Buddhist lineage for 30 years, we never spoke about those things. Why would we? I had no interest in, nor any curiosity about religion or spirituality, or actually not even in inner growth for that matter. But this day, with my broken heart in the grocery store, something other than a conscious decision prompted me to walk up to Mike and ask, ask him a question that I would never have imagined myself asking anyone. And this wasn't something I'd com contemplated to do beforehand. It was just my intuition and it just happened. So I went up to him and I said, Mike, can I come up to, the, to your meditation hut and will you teach me to meditate? The strange thing is that he wasn't even surprised. I imagine that it wasn't the first time that he saw human despair lead people to meditation. So I had nothing to lose, so I went up to his round meditation hut, built of straw, bale, uh, straw bales and rendered with pure lime from the earth, and inside it looked like a mini temple. It was full of Buddha statues, of candles, of offerings and other ritual objects that I didn't know what they were, and the walls were covered with big images, they're called tankas, and they're of Tibetan deities. And some of these deities or saints, they look really ferocious with, with bared teeth, flame coming, coming out of their eyes. And some of them are adorned with human skulls. <laughs> and on one of these tankas, tankas, two of these beings were even engaged in intercourse. And there were, of course, also images of more peaceful-looking Buddhas seated cross-legged and with benign smiles on their rounded faces. And, you know, so I sat down there cross-legged on a meditation cushion next to Mike. And the good thing is that I, I trusted him because I knew him. I trusted him. So in that sense, I was relaxed and open about learning to meditate. But even if I was fascinated by the exotic beauty of this little... Tibetan temple or Gompa in the Andalusian mountains, I was also deeply suspicious <laughs> of these religious relics. So that first night, all Mike asked me to do was to observe my breath for about 15 minutes. And when I stepped out of the hut onto the mountainside, I just stood there for a moment overlooking the deep gorge underneath me with a river uh, at the bottom. You know, nothing had changed. You know, the eroding currents of loss and grief were still coursing through me. But I could also sense that I was onto something. Not that I had been particularly good at staying with my object of meditation, which had been the breath, 
But I could sense that this looking inward at myself with, without latching on to everything that arose in my mind and this observing my own mind and also the momentary peace that you can feel when you're not all the time engaged with your thoughts and your feelings. Just the breath. Such a relief. So I could see that being able to observe all the torrents of thoughts and feelings, that that was uh, something revolutionary for me. And I could see the relief that was in it. Uh, I was really onto something. I could sense that even after 15 minutes of breathing meditation, of breath meditation. Of course, I didn't know that I was onto something that over the coming years would change my life more than anything else ever had. And as you can probably guess, my hero's journey started that night. It was very often terrifying and very uncomfortable full of doubts and demons, but it was also the most rewarding and meaningful journey a person can take. So let's get, come back to this notion of the hero's journey from Joseph Campbell. Now he says that the pattern that's common to all the fairy tales and the mythologies and the religions and the spiritualities of the world is the pattern of the individual at some point in their life being called out of their comfort zone, being called to go beyond the known. Now this journey into the unknown is in the world's mythologies and stories depicted as an external voyage into foreign lands or realms where the hero meets the most difficult challenges, but he also meets key helpers on the way who give him mystical guidance. The hero, needless to say, overcomes all the challenges, which are often represented as ordeals of the underworld, the ordeals of the ugly, the earthy, the downward, the dark currents. But when the hero finally emerges from these trials and tribulations, she has undergone a transformation of some sort. She has gone through her own existential darkness, met the demons head on, and come through on the other side with new understandings and healings that she can now bring into the world. So we tend to think that our human life is so special, that our troubles are so individual, and that our human journey is unique and personal. This is, of course, true on one level. The details of our story is individual and unique to us. But the broader strokes of our stories or the symbolic significance of its universal and uh, are, are universal and common to humankind. So there can be some comfort in knowing that the dark night of the soul, to some extent, is a shared stage of our human development. So what is the different then, difference then between the two heroes' journeys, the one of sailing around the world for three years as a young person, and the inner journey of discovering and daring to go into your own dark corners and not run away? Both journeys take courage, strength and stamina. 
I think. But the difference is that in the first one of these journeys, I powered and muscled my way through all the obstacles, through the fears, the doubts, the disappointments, and the perceived dangers of losing myself in normal human vulnerabilities. That was like my worst fear, losing myself in normal human vulnerabilities. I would not allow myself to go there. So does this then mean that I didn't learn or gain anything from my three years on the ocean? Of course I did. I learned a lot and some of it was really useful and has helped me greatly in life. Courage, for example, to feel the fear, but do it anyway, because I trust in my own abilities to deal with whatever might come. Perseverance, to be able to stay with the dis discomfort because I accept that this is what is here right now and that it will change at some point. And then trust, trust in other people, trust in life and trust in my own inborn abilities to find a way through anything. I really did um, learn those abilities when I was sailing. So these are no small gifts, courage, perseverance and trust. And they sure did come in handy when the real journey began some 20 years later. On this other hero's journey, the, the inner journey that I went on. Could write a whole book about that, of course. <laughs> uh, but I would say that the most important, and this is something I've spoken about in some of the podcast episodes, is the softness. I, I uh, have always valued that I had this ability to be pretty hard. You know, I could, I could push through most things. Um, I had a lot of perseverance and a lot of courage. Um, and I always valued that, those qualities a lot in me. And, and I thought that those were the most important qualities in a human life because that would get you anywhere and you could achieve anything with, with that kind of qualities. That's what we're taught, isn't it? that with those qualities we can achieve anything we want. And we can achieve a lot with those qualities. But one thing that I don't think they're very good at achieving is this feeling of your life being truly meaningful. And the more vulnerable and perhaps soft parts inside of me, uh, they were barely allowed to express themselves and when I felt that they wanted to come up and be part of me I would suppress them because I really didn't see any value in them I really didn't I saw them as weaknesses and it's funny how today I look at it exactly the other way around I think that it's such a weakness for a human being to be so hard and so in penetrable, so impermeable. Uh, whereas I think that our vulnerability and our softness, that is our true strength. I don't mean losing ourselves in, 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 uh, in our vulnerability, but seeing it and tending to it instead of suppressing it. That gives us a lot of strength. So 
that so getting to know that vulnerability and getting to know that softness and very slowly daring to actually express them and to have them be part of my being that was a very slow process because I was scared shitless to show those things because I'd always been this hard person and um and now they're more and more a part of me but if I really need to push through on some areas I can still do that but in a different way in a more connected way and when I say connected I mean connected to myself not just pushing through and negating a part of me and I think that's what the whole hero's journey is about it's about not negating one part of yourself that you can recognize all parts of yourselves even the ugly parts I'm not going to talk about the ugly parts of myself here now but instead of pushing them down which I'd always done I can now say oh it's you and kind of embrace it and say yeah yeah I see you it's okay you know and when you can embrace and be with your whole full self I think that's what the whole the hero's journey is about and it brings a lot of relief because pushing down parts of yourself or negating parts of yourself or abandoning parts of yourself takes a lot of energy and it takes uh, you're not whole you're only partial but your wholeness there's a part in you your intuition knows that something is missing so there's this dissatisfaction there's this mm, gnarly sort of knowing inside of yourself that something is missing and it is actually only in my experience and this is what most uh, masters at life come to this conclusion that is it is not until you can embrace your whole being as it is that doesn't mean that you uh, mm, fall victim to mm, expressing your dark sides but at least acknowledge them and know them and know how to deal with them, but not pushing them away. That's not going to work. <laughs> so this softness and vulnerability, what it has brought to my life, why it is the hero's journey is because it actually makes you perceive all of life in a completely different way. You are in life, you're embedded in life in a completely different way. And that is why this podcast is called Intimacy with the World. Because what it gives you when you allow the softness to be at the forefront, you become permeable to the world. Whereas when you have that hard shell, nothing can come in through that shell. But when you become soft, you're permeable. So you can then have intimacy with the world. The world can touch you. And I don't mean, when I say the world, I mean everything. Other people, animals, plants, the air, the rain, the beauty, the clouds, but also the ugliness. But you can hold the ugliness in a different way, in a more wise way, in a more compassionate way. Uh, and that's the other thing, of course, that the hero's journey seems to bring to everyone is compassion and one of the reasons that the compassion arises is because the hero's journey is very painful you are in so much pain 
And when you are in so much pain, then you know what it is. And then you recognize it in other human beings and animals and in the world. And you know what it feels like to be in that pain. And then compassion arises in you to want to alleviate or acknowledge that pain and to even feel it. And there's also another thing that this true hero's journey has brought to me. And it's a different kind of fearlessness. Because although it takes a kind of fearlessness to be out on the oceans, crossing oceans in a small boat, this kind of fearlessness that I'm talking about now is that whatever happens, I feel, this might not be true, (laughs) it remains to be seen, but I feel that whatever happens, I can deal with it. And why is that? Because the pain that you go through when you go on the hero's journey, that dark night of the soul, is so painful. And then you, what happened to me was I learned to meditate and I learned a lot about the Buddhist teachings by studying with Mike. And there's so much wisdom there. Now, I, I don't call myself a Buddhist, but there's so, so much wisdom there that if you really go into it, it will help you navigate life. It will help you navigate the difficult times. And what you do in meditation is that you cultivate some of these qualities that the teachings talk about. And you dare to go into those dark places of your own mind and heart in meditation. And you stay there. You stay in those dark places where you think you can't stay. It's too painful. I want to run away. But you stay And when you stay and you see that you can and you see that your heart softens and expands and that with that softening and expansion of your heart, you can actually hold the pain. Then you see that, wow, I can actually be with anything. That's that kind of fearlessness that I mean. That when you know that I'm not scared of life and I'm not scared of failing. I was terrified of failing before. You know, I had to be the best. <laughs> and now it's like, I'm still, I still quiver when I set out on a new um, endeavor, when I offer a new course or, or when I do something that scares me a bit. It's, I'm still quivering, but I'm not so scared of failing. It's like, that's okay. I can deal with that. So your ego softens. And the ego is what most makes us suffer in this life. It makes us suffer so, so tremendously. To think that I am right. And I am so precious. And what I think really matters. And who I am really matters. Oh, so much suffering and all that. So now I see myself as much more insignificant and very, very humbled. I remember being there in the middle of the dark night of the soul and just feeling so small and so humbled. And some of that humility has fortunately stayed. And that is such a gift to see that you're just one more human on the earth. You are significant. Of course you are. 
But you don't have to take yourself so seriously. You don't have to take your opinions so seriously. You don't have to take your successes or your failures so seriously. And, and then this impermanence, when you really dive into the teachings of impermanence and the experience of impermanence, then you know that everything's changing anyway. I am changing anyway. And who am I anyway? Is there a real me at the core there, Dorita, that I need to defend at all cost? Or is there just this continuous stream and flow of experiences, of thoughts, of feelings? And is there perhaps no real inherent Dorita, me, to grasp onto and hold onto so tightly? And of course I'm not able to practice this all the time. I am a very, um, um, I'm very human. But just the knowing that I can stop and remember that's what mindfulness is also about learning to pause and to remember what's important to remember who you really are which is not who you normally think you are <laughs> so these have been tremendous learnings for me and of course I'm still a work in progress and the best of all is that this journey is still ongoing it's going to be going on until I die even if I die at 120 I aim at 110. Uh, it's never ending. And that brings me so much joy because there's so much more to learn. There's so much more to experience, both in the outer world, but also in the inner world. And it's just such a joy to be intimate with the world, to let the world touch you, to dare to let the world touch you. That is true courage. And that is the journey that I try to inspire all of us to embark upon. So I think that since this is a solo episode with just me speaking, that will be enough for today. <laughs> it probably won't be the last solo episode I do. And then to end off, if you've enjoyed this episode or if you've been inspired or if you learned something, then please subscribe to the podcast and you're also very welcome to rate and review it on Apple Podcast. And lastly, if you are interested in one-on-one -on -one sessions with me, then you can go to my website www.duritaholm.com and you can schedule a 25-minute session. It's free and we can see if we are a good fit to work together in the future. And uh, until next week, when I will have a guest, be well. well.